So tonight we're looking at, at Numbers, the fourth book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, or of Torah, or of the Law, however you have memorized that section of, uh, of Scripture. The Hebrew title of Numbers is actually, in Hebrew, it's Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness, which I think is a far better title for Numbers than Numbers, but uh, we have the English title Numbers, and, um, and that's okay. We'll work with it. If you're familiar at all with the book of Numbers, you'll know that the English title Numbers is uh, really pretty accurate and helpful for understanding what happens in this book. There are two large censuses that are taken in the book of Numbers, censuses of the people uh, of Israel, numbering them and, and telling how many there are and of what clans and where they all came from. But most of what happens in Numbers is, is not actually tied up or bound up in those censuses. It's actually stuff that's happening as the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. It's actually in the book of Numbers that we get the reason for their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And we'll look at that here in just a few moments. Numbers is a, a book that's got some law in it. It's got some narrative stuff in it. Uh, it's got some miraculous events, and it has some monumental blunders by important people, and we'll see those as well. As we look at Numbers, and, and as we look at whole books of the Bible on Sunday nights, just as we do this, um, uh, my desire is that we would, we would glean from these times together uh, some tools, some skills, some understanding of Scripture that will just help us to read our Bibles better. Right? As we're studying God's Word, being able to understand what we're reading better, having some tools to, to help us guide our study. And so, that said, let's look at some of the particulars of Numbers. The author and the date of Numbers, are uh, the date of its writing, are the same as the uh, other first three books of the Pentateuch that we've looked at, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. It's written by Moses, even though we're not told that um, uh, explicitly. In the book of Numbers, we understand traditionally, and, and uh, the rest of Scripture refers to the law and the prophets, or to Moses and the prophets. And when they, uh, other places of Scripture where you see that, Moses and the prophets, usually what they're referring to is the first five books of the Bible, written sometime between 1400 and 1200 D, uh, B.C., depending on when you uh, date the, the Exodus event, uh, written most likely during this wilderness wandering period that we'll read about here in a moment. Now, if I were to summarize the book of Numbers, in just a couple of short sentences, and this is here in your handout, I would do it this way. Right? Numbers is the fourth book of the Pentateuch, the Torah. It recounts God's work to bring the people of Israel through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land. The time of their sojourn in the wilderness is 40 years, so deemed by God as judgment for their rebellion against him after leaving Egypt. Numbers ends with a new generation of Israel poised to follow God faithfully into the promised land. And we'll see that unfold as we look at it. Major themes of numbers are these three. One, the heart of man is fickle. Not pickle, fickle. The heart of man is fickle. It flops back and forth. It changes frequently, easily. Secondly, God deals justly with the rebellious. God deals justly with sinners. But also, third, God is merciful to sinners. He deals in justice with the rebellious, but he also exercises mercy and grace to sinners as well. Now, in the scope of redemption history, Numbers covers primarily this aspect of the fall because we are reminded regularly of man's sinfulness in the book of Numbers. 
and our need for redemption and also uh, gets us ready for, leads us to a time of redemption. It leads us up to Israel entering the promised land, which as we see will be a, a type, which will be a foreshadowing of a more permanent homeland, which is in heaven that we attain not through Moses, but through Christ. So as you have your uh, pens there, maybe just want to circle those two words, uh, fall, the arrow in between fallen redemption and that word redemption. Just circle those, uh, that, that center cluster right there in the scope of redemption history as to where numbers lies and where it falls and what it points to. Now, the genre of numbers, the kind of literature that it is, is largely historical narrative like Genesis, Exodus and Leviticus. It recounts actual historical events related to the wilderness period of Israel. As such, lessons are taught through characters and their actions rather than through direct instruction. Okay, the things that we learn about God and about ourselves from Numbers, uh, we learn through the characters of the story. In Numbers, there are no heroic characters but God. They're just failure after failure after failure in Numbers. He is the only individual. God is the only individual who never fails in all that he intends to do in this book. The heart of mankind in Numbers is shown to be erratic and failing in Numbers. And when reading this book and seeking to understand it better, you should ask yourself the following kinds of questions. One, what is this text, what is this book telling me about God and his character? What is this book telling me about who God is and what he desires for me and his, his nature? Secondly, what does this text reveal about my own fickle heart? Yes, your heart is fickle too. My heart is fickle too. Where do we see ourselves in numbers? Where do we see even our own foolishness in numbers? And, and what do we do in response to that? Third, ask yourself this question. How has God pursued me in spite of myself? How in what ways has God pursued me in spite of myself? God does often pursue us in spite of ourselves. He does that by sending Christ to die for us. We don't deserve a Savior, and yet God sends us one in His Son, Jesus. Now, I've titled this sermon, Numbers, The Long Way Home. Because they do take the long way home, and it takes them a long time to get home. The book of Numbers, as we'll look at it tonight, kind of unfolds in, in three movements or three motions, three parts. First, chapters 1 through 10, God prepares his people. Secondly, chapters 11 through 17, God's people rebel. Third, chapters 18 through 36, God perseveres in grace with his people. So God prepares his people. God's people rebel against him. And God perseveres in grace with his sinful people that he has chosen to call for himself to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Before we jump into numbers, let me pray for us and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, you alone are holy. You alone are worthy of our praise and worship. Only you deserve our whole hearts and lives. You've created us that we might know and love and worship you. And we have uh, sinned against you and separated ourselves from you. But we thank you for your love and your grace to us in sending Jesus, your son, who's fully God, yet fully man, to die a death he didn't deserve in our place. And not to remain dead, but to be raised from the dead, to be resurrected, to show that he is victorious over sin and death for all time. That by trusting in him and turning from our sin, we might be saved. What a great gift to us, God, your, your gift of salvation is. Give us grace to have faith and to trust in you tonight. 
Help us, God, as, as we look at rebellious people to see the rebellion of our own hearts for what it truly is. And God, help us to walk in repentance. Help us to turn from our sin and rebellion against you that we might know, love, and worship you the way we've been designed to do. Thank you for your word and thank you for your patience with Israel because it's a picture of your patience with all of us that you have endured with our, our sinfulness, our rebellion, and even loved us and pursued us in spite of it. And God, we thank you for that. Help us to see that clearly in the book of Numbers. God, help us to be edified by your word. You be glorified as we submit ourselves to it and ask for your guidance and leadership in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers, the long way home. First, act one, God prepares his people in chapters one through ten. God prepares his people in numbers. You'll recall, right, in Exodus, they've already left Egypt. In Leviticus, they've been wandering for a period of of time, receiving uh, a lot of the law that will instruct them as a people and how they are to live as a holy people. And in Numbers chapter one, verse one, we read this, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So it's been two years and two months since they've left Egypt when numbers begins. And God prepares his people in chapters one and two by numbering them. He numbers them. The Lord speaks to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, right? Here in verse one, um, on the second day of the second month, second year after they come out of the land of Egypt. And he says in chapter 1, verse 2, uh, to Moses, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. That's Numbers 1, verses 1 through 3. He numbers his people. He gives them a way to know who they are, who is counted among them, who's an Israelite, who is not. Right? So that they might also remember God's faithfulness to bring them out of Egypt. In their whole group, right? All of them together have been brought out. Not a one has been left behind. He numbers his people, and that's a work of his grace. But secondly, chapters 3 and 4, he gives them priests. He gives them priests. And we looked a lot at the priesthood in Leviticus and what the job of the priest was. But here we're reminded in chapters uh, 3 and 4 that God has given them, specifically among the, the tribe of Levi, people to lead them spiritually. People who will help them to worship God rightly. People who will help them to make atonement for their sins as they act as mediators between sinful people and a holy God. He's given them the gift of the priests. And in chapters 5 and 6, he continues to prepare his people. By teaching them about purity. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, we get instruction about, uh, uh, about separating the clean from the unclean. We spent a lot of time in Leviticus talking about clean, cleanness and uncleanness in Israel. And you'll remember, uncleanness is, is not that somebody is, is unholy or somehow uh, particularly evil, but uncleanness is just having the, the visible effects of sin on your body, right? Of, of living in a sinful, broken, fallen world. So a person with leprosy, right, is not allowed in the camp. Why? Because leprosy is a result of the fall um, with skin diseases, uh, just disease in general being a result of original sin, of living in a broken world. Uh, God's people are to be holy, and if uh, the evidence of sin is upon them in the midst of the camp, that, that doesn't designate them as holy, but designates them as unholy. So God says, separate the clean and the unclean, and gives them a process by which people who are unclean may be made clean. So lepers who are healed, people who have skin diseases who are healed, can be uh, deemed clean and can enter back into the regular worship uh, of the body. So he teaches them about separating the clean and the unclean. In chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, 
He gives instruction about confessing sin and seeking restitution. The Lord spoke to Moses, this is Numbers 5, verse 5, spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, when a man or a woman commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to the person to whom he did wrong. Here God is instructing them that they might confess their sins. Right, repent of their sins and be forgiven. But also, God is uh, instituting a pattern by which they, uh, the people of Israel care for one another. If you wronged somebody and you recognize that you wronged them, you confess your sin and you don't just leave, it, leave the person wrong. No, you pay back to them everything you had plus a fifth. So you pay back 120% of what you had wronged a person. That's God's way of showing, hey, look, we don't take advantage of each other uh, among my people. We care for one another. And when you realize that you've sinned against someone, uh, make it right. And more than make it right, make it right plus. Make it right and then some. As God is a gracious and giving God, he wants his people to be gracious and giving as well. And then in verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 through 31, we have this extended passage that gives us a, a gracious test for adultery. And this might seem kind of strange as you read through numbers on your own and you get to chapter 5. But as you read this test for adultery, the, the, the text begins this way. In verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, Though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, that is her husband, he's jealous of the wife who has defiled herself. The spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. And he shall pour no oil on it, pour no frankincense on it, for it is grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. Then look at verses 16 and following. The priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. So he's got water, he takes dirt, he puts it in the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place her hands in the grain offering of remembrance, which is a grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you are not turned aside to uncleanness while you are under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has laid with you, then... The Lord make you a curse and an oath among, among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. What is going on here? This is a gracious test, a gracious way that God institutes for, for a woman to either be, be deemed guilty or innocent of adultery. Okay. Now, for a, a wife to wander away from her husband uh, would not be a good thing for her at all in the people of Israel. Neither would it be good for a man to, uh, to walk away or to stray away from his wife. And so it would um, seems that it would be, I don't know, necessarily common, but, but at least a recurring uh, instance in which a man would be jealous for his wife, right? thinking that she has been taken by another man. And whether he has proof of it or not, the Lord gives this gracious test to be able to find out whether the woman is guilty of it or not. So see in this. This is not the sort of testing for adultery that we see in things like the scarlet letter. 
right? We're, we're, we're not binding women up and throwing them into the river and saying, well, if, uh, if she floats, she's guilty. If she sinks, she was innocent, okay? We're not like testing for witches there. It is, however, a very public and deliberate test that through its various stages reminds this wayward wife or potentially wayward wife of the importance of fidelity to her husband. What does she do? She comes into the tabernacle. She's supposed to put her hands in uh, the grain offering, the barley, right? So her hands are in the offering to the Lord, Okay, so she's holding on to an offering that is given to God. And then she is to drink water that has dirt from the tabernacle in it. Now, that dirt was not particularly um, uh, uh, sanctimonious or sacred, or there's nothing magical about the dirt. It's It's dirt in water. And she's supposed to have her hands in the offering and drink this water. All symbols of God's uh, judgment upon people who deserve his judgment. Now, if she's innocent, with her hands in in the... offering and drinking the water, she can know wholeheartedly, right? God will not curse me. I'm innocent. I know that I am. But if she is guilty and she has not told her husband, what does she have to do? She has to suffer through having her hands in an offering given to God and drinking water in front of the people and lying, continuing to lie to her husband about her adultery. God doesn't say, take her out of the camp and stone her right away, right? Do all this stuff, whatever. But he says, do this, give her signs to, to have and to hold on to that she might uh, discover or, or that it might be known whether she is guilty or not. Now, knowing also the rigors of the test, her jealous husband should also be made uh, aware of his own need for fidelity to her. If a husband is going to accuse his wife of adultery in front of the people, he's got to know that she's going to have to go through all of this stuff in front of everybody as well. So it ought to also serve as a deterrent against the husband. To, to not falsely bring charges against his wife of adultery. Ultimately, any consequence for infidelity at the end of this passage is left to God's administration. A very good thing indeed. A very good thing indeed. God is saying, you can trust me to do what I will do to know the heart of the individual and to mete out justice appropriately. It's a gracious test for adultery. And I pray that as we read that, we'll see that. He also... He also teaches his people about purity by giving them uh, the Nazarites among them. This is in chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Nazarites were the kind of guys who would, um, who would let their hair grow for a really long time, and they would take certain vows to abstain from certain kinds of things. Um, Samson was a Nazarite in the book of Judges. But these people would become individuals among Israel who by taking vows and letting their hair grow and not eating certain things and other stuff that would serve as walking reminders to the people of Israel of the call to corporate holiness. And that Israel is to be holy because the Lord their God is holy. They have representatives among them showing we are a holy people. But God also prepares his people by blessing them with his name. Look at Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. God prepares his people for the land that they are going into by giving them the blessing of his own name. And in chapters 9 and 10, we see that the Lord goes before his people. There is there in chapters 9 and 10 sort of this instruction for almost what seems to be a royal procession of Israel everywhere they go. 
The, the high priests with the Ark of the Covenant are to walk out in front of the people. Behind them, the Levites. Behind them, tribe after tribe after tribe of people. As they walk through the wilderness, we have God going literally in front of them. His presence in the Ark of the Covenant and the people following. We read there in chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud, that is the cloud of God's presence, covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. Say God's presence is always visible among his people. And at evening it was over the tabernacle. Uh, I'm sorry. So, so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. Numbers chapter 10, verses 33 through 36. So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day and whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. See that God prepares his people by blessing them with his name, by blessing them with his presence, by going before them everywhere he intends to take them. See what good care God takes for his people And even in the midst of, maybe even in spite of God's good care for his people, in chapters 11 through 17, we see that God's people rebel. They rebel against his goodness. They rebel against his provision. They rebel against his good care for them. In chapter 11, verse 1, we see that they begin by complaining about their hardship. Chapter 11, verse 1, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. The fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Just in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, we see Israel going out from the place where they camped with the Lord, the Lord going before them, the Ark of the Covenant at the head of their procession, and the cloud of the presence of God before them. And then immediately in chapter 11, once they get settled, what happens? They start complaining. Oh, it's so hard for us in the desert. They complain about their hardships. They, in verses 4 through 6, they grumble about their food. 4 through 6 says this, 11, 4 through 6. Now the rabble that was among them uh, had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Numbers eleven thirteen. they say, give us meat that we may eat. Verse 18, who will give us meat to eat? It was better for us in Egypt. Numbers eleven twenty. why did we ever come out of Egypt? They grumble about their hardship. They grumble about their food, not recognizing that God has already given them all that they need and more. They find things to complain about. Their fickle hearts are on full display It's not just the people of Israel, it's also Miriam and Aaron, Moses' own brother and sister who complain about Moses' authority. In chapter 12, verses uh, 1 and 2, we read this. 
Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now they're grumbling, Miriam and Aaron's grumbling, though it begins with this complaint about him marrying a Cushite woman, a, a, a woman from the area of what is modern day Ethiopia. Um, is not really what their complaint is about because the Cushite woman is not ever mentioned again in any of their complaints. Instead, what seems to be the problem is that they're upset with Moses' authority as the one who's been chosen by God to lead Israel. They're upset that God has chosen him and not them. They said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Moses, has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Miriam and Aaron even complain about the things that God has done and God's good gift to them in leaders. And then in chapters 14 and 16 and 25, the people of Israel rebel openly against God. Open rebellion against God. First in chapter 13, uh, verse 1 through 14, 10, they rebel openly over the promised land. In chapter 13, we have a lot of hope. There's great hope for Israel when the spies that that Moses appoints to go into the land of Canaan that God has promised, they go to spy it out. They take stock of the goods. They bring back some grapes that they have to carry on a pole between two dudes. There's so many grapes. But of the 12 spies that come back, 10 of them say, the land, it's too dangerous. It's no good. We know God promised it, but we can't go in there. They say this. This is in Numbers 13, 28 and 29, and 32 and 33. It says, However, the people who dwell in the land, they say, are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell there in the land of uh, the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. They say, it's no good. Can't go there. There's giants that live there. They'll beat us up. They'll eat our lunch. And they said to one another, Numbers 14.4, Let us choose a leader then and go back to Egypt. Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Who has God chosen to lead Israel? Moses. What has he chosen Moses to lead Israel from? Egypt. They say, let us choose a different leader that God has not appointed. And let us go back to the place that God has just delivered us from. The land that God has promised is no good. They openly rebel against God's plan for them to go into the promised land. In chapter 16, they rebel openly against the priests. There in chapter 16, a man named Korah, a Levite himself, though not a high priest, complains and foments a rebellion against the high priests and the Aaronic priesthood. His complaint is that Aaron and Moses have unrightfully elevated themselves above the rest of the people, trying to be seen as kings or as princes over the rest of Israel. And Korah argues against God's instruction on the priesthood that any person of Israel should be able to indeed themselves approach God, even as a priest does. That is to say, God, the means by which you have given us to worship you, to have our sins atoned for, it's, it's not good. We're actually better than you tell us that we are. We can, we can worship you on our terms, not yours. And then in chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, the people rebel openly against God by worshiping False gods. Numbers 25 verses 1 through 3 says this. 
While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Yep, that's what the text says. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So not only do they not follow God faithfully into the promised land, not only do they rebel against the priests that God has commanded and instructed to lead uh, Israel in proper worship, but they also rebel against God himself by worshiping false gods. By, as the text says, prostituting themselves after false gods. It's a graphic image of what idolatry looks like, but God uses that language on purpose. Because it is to to go after another God who is not the true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is to be unfaithful to the one who has saved them. It's the same picture that God uses in Hosea, the prophet. He calls Hosea to marry a prostitute as a picture of God who has joined himself to, to an adulterous people. So what's the result? What's the result of the people's rebellion? The result of that is that God punishes his people. Three different ways. One, by causing them to wander for 40 years. You want to know why the Israelites had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? It's because it was God's response to their lack of faith to be able to enter the promised land in Numbers 13 and 14. The Lord promises that not a single person from that generation will see the promised land because of their unfaithfulness. Numbers 14, verses 20 through 23. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, speaking to Moses, who's asked for forgiveness of the people. But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. And thus the wandering begins. So he causes his people to wander for 40 years. In response to Korah and his people's rebellion against the priests, the Lord punishes his people by wiping the rebels off the face of the earth, literally. Korah and his rebels are confronted by Moses in Numbers 16 and are asked to appear before the Lord as those who would offer priestly duties. It is to say, you think you can act like priests even though you've not been commissioned as high priests? Well, go ahead and get your priestly things together and offer a priestly sacrifice before the Lord and we'll see what happens. And then Moses then turns and warns that the Lord may do something as drastic as opening the earth to swallow the rebels whole. Moses says, everybody back up from Korah and his people, because who knows, the Lord might open the ground and swallow them up. And as soon as Moses finishes speaking, we read this in Numbers 16, 32 through 34. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, that is the land of the dead. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly and all Israel who are around them fled at their cry for they say for they said lest the earth swallow us up god punishes the rebels by wiping them off of the face of the earth for their open rebellion he also punishes his people in numbers chapter 25 for their idolatry by taking the lives of the idolaters by putting to death those who worshiped the idols now you might remember in uh, exodus 32 when the people of israel create for themselves a golden calf What happens after that? What's the punishment for those who worship that golden calf? Well, the Levites, as their ordination service, take up swords and go to and fro throughout the camp, killing everyone who was involved in this idol worship. Why? Because God's people are supposed to be a holy people, a people dedicated to him. 
And when they prostitute themselves after false gods, the, the results, the, the, the consequences for that are, are dread consequences. And so we read in Numbers 24, 4 and 5, a similar response to uh, the people of Israel's idolatry. The Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. These are pretty difficult punishments for the people of Israel to handle. These are hard things sometimes for believers and even non-believers to read in the Bible. Causes us to ask a question, why so harsh, God? Chill out, dude. It's not a big deal. What? Why so harsh with your people? In response to that, I would say, let us remind ourselves, let us remember the promised consequence for sin in Genesis 2, verse 17. There God says to Adam, he says, in the day you eat of that forbidden fruit, you will surely die. Romans 6.23 reminds us of this fact as well. The wages of sin is death. What do we deserve for our rebellion against God? Death. God even warns the people in the wilderness in Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31. There he says this. The person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. These are high-handed sins. These are open, openly rebellious, knowingly sinful, willingly sinful acts against the Lord. The person does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Why so harsh, God? God's not harsh. He's only doing what he already warned us from Genesis chapter 2, 17, before the first sin was ever even committed, what the results of our sin would be, death. And we have the audacity to look God in the face and say, ease up, God. It's not a big deal. When God has already said, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Why? Why is God so harsh? Why is he so severe? Because he is so holy. Because he is so holy. We do well to have a, a good fear for God's holiness, a reverent fear for his holiness, understanding that he alone is infinitely holy and that any transgression against an infinitely holy God is a transgression of infinite magnitude. Whether you kill somebody in cold blood or as I said this morning, you steal a pencil eraser from a classmate. Either way is an offense of infinite, infinite uh, detestability in the face of a holy God. Why so harsh? It's not, it's not harsh. God's just doing what he said would happen. God is just causing to happen what he said would happen when people sin. God prepares his people, yes. They rebel against his goodness, of course. But God, in chapters 18 through 36... Perseveres in grace with his sinful people. God doesn't just kill all of Israel and start over. We know that much. God is incredibly gracious to his people and he shows them his grace. He perseveres in grace with them in a few different ways. First, by teaching them to remember to be holy. By teaching them to remember to be holy. Chapters 18 and 19 and 28 and 29. 
Just after Korah's rebellion, remember the guy who was mad that the priests were priests and he wasn't? In chapter 18, God gives instructions to the priests for the various kinds of offerings and procedures that are to be followed for those who are sinful or unclean in the camp of Israel. Right after someone has been judged for his sin, God then shows the people how they might be purified from their sin. This should remind us of what we know God's purpose was in giving all of the sacrificial and cleanliness laws of Leviticus. Right? God said, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. But sinful people tend to forget the goodness of God to them. Is that not true in your life and in mine? How often do we forget the goodness of God to us? How often do we get so caught up in our circumstances and present struggles that we forget the patterns of God's grace and provision to us in the past? God is good in these times to call our remembrance, uh, call to our remembrance his kindness and mercy to us. And for Israel, here in the book of Numbers, he gives them a calendar by which to remember his grace to them. So he doesn't just remind them about purity and holiness, he actually gives them a schedule by which to remember that. And in chapters 28 and 29, we have this calendar of remembrance. And here in these two chapters, God gives clear directions for the offerings and the feasts that Israel is to hold. Here they are. Are you ready? Daily offerings, Sabbath offerings, which happen weekly, monthly offerings, Passover offerings, which happen every new year, the Feast of Weeks, which happens seven weeks after Passover, Uh, The Feast of Trumpets, which is the first day of the seventh month of the year, about halfway through the year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, on which all the day on which all the sins of Israel are forgiven. That's the tenth day of the seventh month, and on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for eight days thereafter, they celebrate the Feast of Booths. See how God even structures their their yearly life, their calendar around remembering who He is about remembering his holiness and remembering his grace to them and remembering that he, he is the one who has brought them up out of the land of Egypt to be their God, that he has called them to be a holy people and royal priesthood, that they might bless the nations because of who God is and what he is doing through them. I think we would do well to be better at scheduling our lives and our years, our yearly calendars around uh, celebrations and, and reminders, re- remembrances of God's goodness and grace to us. We, we have things like baptism that we celebrate together when a new believer uh, comes to, to lay his life in Christ's hands and trust Christ for salvation. We baptize them and we celebrate that moment. We share in the Lord's Supper, as we will uh, in a little while, to remember God's grace to us in, in Jesus, the salvation that we have by faith in his name. We have times like Easter and times like Christmas. So it's just kind of built into the, the calendar of our nation. But, but what about us as individuals? Do we weekly, regularly, even as we attend worship on Sunday mornings, do we approach that as a time to remember intently, intentionally remember God's goodness and God's grace to us? I would ask that you begin to, to see your weeks, to see your months, to see those special times of the year, Easter, Christmas, other various holidays, baptisms, Lord's Supper, not just as moments to do the things that the church does, just things that we walk through, rituals that we go through, because they're more than that. They're reminders of God's grace to us. Every Sunday morning when we gather together as the church and, and every fourth Sunday night as we gather together in this way, right? we are reminding ourselves of God's grace to us, God's goodness to us in Christ Make remembering God a part of your calendar and remembering his grace to you. Second way that he perseveres his people in grace is by enduring with them in grace, by graciously enduring with his people. First of all, with Israel's leaders in chapter 20, verses 9 through 12. 
We see there that rebellion is not just in the hearts of the people of Israel. It's also in the hearts of Moses and Aaron as well. Moses is a rebel. We've already seen it in Aaron's heart as he and Miriam, his sister, oppose Moses earlier in Numbers. But here in Numbers chapter 20, Moses, who's Israel's chosen leader, in a fit of anger, disobeys God's command to speak to a rock to bring water from it for the people. And instead, he strikes it twice with his staff. Moses' open rebellion against God deserves death, the same as any other sin from any other person in Israel. But God is gracious with this leader that he has chosen. And he allows Moses to live a while longer that he might bring the people to the edge of the promised land. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, we read this. God says to Moses, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses will pay the due penalty for his sin of disobeying God publicly in front of all of the people. God deals severely even with his leaders, his chosen leaders, when they sin. But yet he's gracious to Moses in allowing him to at least bring the people to the edge of the promised land, to before he dies at least see the promised land from afar. See God's grace in that. He continues in grace uh, with his people amidst their continued grumbling. Their grumbling doesn't stop after, the, after God gives them meat in the wilderness. It continues in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. There in this place, the people begin to grumble again against God about their situation and circumstances and having to wander in the wilderness. And in so doing, they provoke God's anger. And God's first response to them is to send venomous snakes among the camp to bite them, to infect them, to kill some. But just as surely and quickly as he sends a plague, God also sends a means of escaping that plague and to be healed from the snake bites. Numbers 21, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. See that God continues with grace even amidst his grumbling people, giving them a way to escape the plagues that he sends upon them for their disobedience. He also endures with grace with his people by finally in chapters 26 and 32 through 36 by bringing them home. He brings them home. He doesn't leave them to wander in the wilderness. He fulfills his promise to this people. He brings home a new generation in Numbers chapter 26. As surely as God said he would not let any of the rebellious and and distrusting generation Numbers 13 to enter the land, he also brings up a new generation of Israelites to enter the land, to take possession of it, that will be led by Joshua, not by Moses. In chapter 26, a new census is taken. There are two censuses in the book of Numbers. One in chapter 1 and chapters 1 and 2, and one in chapter 26. The second census is taken of all the people 20 years and older whose rebellious parents and grandparents had all died in the wilderness. This is the generation, a faithful generation that will go into Canaan, that will do what the Lord has said, that will take the land as God has commanded with faithful and courageous Joshua as their leader when Moses dies. God brings a new generation home. He also brings them to a holy homeland. In chapters 31 and 34 through 36, we we see these things. In chapter 31, God instructs the Israelites to destroy all the people of Midian. That is, to take vengeance on them. Now, this may seem incredibly harsh, incredibly severe by God as well. This is a kind of passage that brings all sorts of complaints that God is some sort of uh, moral monster in uh, in, in the books of the Bible by those people who are not believers. 
Some have called God a, a genocidal God in Numbers because he says to, to the people of Israel to wipe out the people of Midian to take vengeance upon them. But remember who the Midianites are. They're the same group of people, the people among those of Moab, who in chapter 25 of Numbers enticed the Hebrews into idol worship. These are not innocent people. These are not good, kindly, well-meaning people. These are idolaters and, and child sacrificers. And those who have enticed God's people to prostitute after other gods. God put to death all the Hebrew tribal leaders for their sins of following after Baal of Peor. uh, According to the people of Moab, the Midianites. He put them to death. God killed his own people for their disobedience. And now he will also likewise judge the sins of the Midianites by the hands of Israel as well. Note this. God is an equal opportunity judge judge of evil in the scriptures. He judges evil among the Canaanites, and he judges evil among his own chosen people as well. Sin is serious business, and God does not play favorites when it comes to sin. The wages of sin is death. And as Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, every one of us have disobeyed God. Not a one of us deserves his mercy. Not a one of us deserves his grace. That's why it's called grace. And as we approach the end of Numbers, we find the Lord giving instruction to his people as they enter into this new land. A land that has been made holy as they have wiped out the idolatrous people. The Lord gives them instruction to divide the land among his people. A fulfillment of the promise that he had made to them in Exodus chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. Where there he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land. A land that is flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Numbers ends with God. God being faithful to his promise to his people in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, before he had ever even brought them out of Egypt. God is faithful to bring his people home. That's the book of Numbers, the wandering in the wilderness. We didn't even talk about Balaam and his talking donkey. Go read that this week. What about Jesus? Where do we see Christ in Numbers? That's the point of this whole, whole sermon series on Sunday nights, right? To see how Christ and, and, and the gospel is woven, right? Uh, it's a shameless plug for the series title. Woven into the fabric of all of Scripture. Where do we see Christ in Numbers? First of all, we see Christ in Numbers because He is our escape from God's wrath against sin. God is good and right and just to judge sin in your life and in mine. In the lives of the Canaanites and in the lives of the Israelites. But God is also gracious to give us a way to escape sin and the consequences for it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, there's Jesus meets with Nicodemus the Pharisee by night. He tells Nicodemus that if one wants to see the kingdom of heaven, he must be born again. Nicodemus is confused about what Jesus means. I have to climb back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? Jesus says, no, you dummy. No, he doesn't say dummy. He doesn't. Jesus tells him, listen, Nicodemus, that's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about spiritual things. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth that comes as a result of faith. You don't have to climb back in your mother's womb. That's that's not what I'm talking about. You've got to be born again spiritually. And there in John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. He says, "As as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him 
may have eternal life. Here, Jesus himself is referring to the events of Numbers 21, the, the snakes that, remember, that God sent into the camp to bite the people who were grumbling against him, the bronze serpent, the picture of the thing that was plaguing them placed on a pole, that if the people might just look on it and believe, they would be healed. Jesus says that, uh, in effect, to Nicodemus, he says, I will be the image of the thing that has plagued humanity. I'll I'll take that place so that by looking on me and believing in me, anyone who sees me and looks on me and believes might live. So must the son of man be lifted up. So whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that he will become the thing that is killing all of us. He will become the thing that is killing all of us. He will become sin himself and on the cross will take the full punishment for sin so that anyone who looks on him and believes will live. Jesus, who had no sin, becomes sin for us so that looking on him and believing we might live. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is to say, God made Jesus, who deserved no punishment for sin because he didn't have any sin in himself. He made him to be the one that would take our punishment so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that when the Son of Man is lifted up, as we look on him, sin in our place, the one punished for us as the substitute for our sin, and believe we might live. Jesus is our escape from God's wrath against sin. He's the fullest picture of the the bronze serpent on that pole in the wilderness. God using that event to prepare his people for a moment like that night with Jesus and Nicodemus, where Jesus can say, you remember what God did there in Numbers 21? Same thing here in me, but so much greater. You're not just healed from a venomous snake, but you're healed from the thing that is killing you spiritually. Jesus is our escape from God's wrath against sin. But secondly, and and just as importantly, he brings us to a better homeland. He brings us to a better homeland. Just as God was faithful to his promise to bring his people, Israel, to a, a holy homeland, a place prepared for them. So also Christ brings us to a better homeland. Speaking of the faith of the fathers of Israel and of their descendants, the author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 15. These all died in faith, speaking of the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And in Hebrews 13, verse 14, we read this. For we have in Christ. Let me look it up. I feel like I wrote a typo there. Hebrews 13, 14. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. For here, excuse me, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city as, that is to come. That is to say, our citizenship as people who are trusting Jesus is not in this world. It's not in the United States of America. We don't look forward to 
some great day in this nation where God will be known by all people. We know that that day and that place is not here and is not now. But there is a day that we look forward to. We seek a city that is to come. We seek an eternal city, an eternal dwelling place with God in his own presence. And who has made a way for us to do that? Jesus. Who is the one that brings us home to an eternal holy homeland? Jesus. How does he do it? By dying in our place and being raised from the dead. We have opportunity to remember and to reflect upon God's grace to us in Christ, in his death on our behalf, in his resurrection from the dead. 